before Christianity even had its name, it was just a movement. It was a movement simply known as the way. It wasn't an institution. It was a movement that was known for following the way of Jesus. And we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark that Mark has two central themes that emerge in this way. Jesus is the Son of God, and he has an uncommon authority. But next to these two very important themes in Mark's gospel, uh, we, we, the third one that comes up over and over again is discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus on this way. And the Christian faith has always been a faith that impacts our feet and the direction of our lives. It's a movement of our entire lives toward Jesus. And it's a movement that absolutely anyone, anyone can get caught up in. No other movement in the history of civilization has had the magnitude or the duration of Christianity. And at its best, Christianity is always a movement defined by following Jesus, which is why it's so important to ask, and it has been asked throughout the centuries, who is this Jesus? At its best, Christianity is not just an accumulation of good ideas, and it's not just uh, compassionate actions. It's, it's not a movement removed from heaven or a movement removed from earth. Rather, the Christian movement, is found in the intersection of heaven and earth and the marriage of beautiful uh, realities about God with compassionate actions. But I had to qualify all of that, didn't I? At its best, Christianity is these things. And we can be reserved and even cautious uh, toward the Christian movement because we've seen or heard or even know firsthand how it can fall short of what I just described, how it can fall short of being at its best. And we wonder, is this really a movement that I want to be caught up in? Is this really a movement that will impact my life for the better? Is this really a movement that will impact the world for the better? And so the big idea of the passage this morning is that Jesus calls us to himself, but he does so for the sake of the world. He does it for the sake of the world's renewal. And yes, the renewal is for the better of all. And the surprise, however, is that it's an incredibly ordinary movement. So open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make it known. As the movement of Jesus grew, it disrupted the status quo. And those who wanted to maintain their power feel threatened, especially the religious leaders and the elites. You know, last week we hit a tipping point. The Pharisees have had enough. According to their traditions, Jesus, he's a Sabbath breaker. And so they begin to plot how to destroy Jesus. They want to put an end to him and therefore an end to the movement that is gathering around him. And yet amidst this growing opposition, the movement of Jesus continues to grow and grow. Mark writes in verse 7 that a great crowd followed. This great crowd began gathering from all around. Again, in verse 8, the great crowd heard all that Jesus was doing. And so they came to him. And what was he doing then that drew people from all around the region to come see him? He was preaching the gospel. 
He was preaching about the kingdom of God. And when Jesus preached, visible signs of what the kingdom was actually like manifested. People were healed. Demons were expelled. People gave up everything to follow him. And people then were drawn from all over the ancient world to get a glimpse of the kingdom for themselves. They were drawn to the message that they might be made whole by Jesus. After all, a movement that actually meets us on the ground has to be a movement that intersects with human need. It has to intersect with human need. A movement like Apple, it doesn't work uh, if there isn't an actual need for technology. Likewise, a movement for people doesn't work unless it actually meets deep human need in a tangible and meaningful way. And the movement of Jesus, it's growing. People are drawn to it because it meets their needs. Jesus is healing their illnesses. He's feeding their hunger. He's teaching them about God. He's loving their souls. And this is a movement with uh, traction, with momentum. You know, by today's standards, a lot of people, a lot of companies would love this sort of momentum. You know, we want this sort of attention. We want this sort of recognition. We want people to be drawn all around the world to whatever it is we're passionate about or the product we're trying to sell. And we even want the opposition because, as they say, any press is good press. And this sort of a movement can be attractive to us, too. It's fun to be caught up in something that has momentum something that's drawing people in, something that's changing people's lives. And I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't hope or wish that St. Peter's became a movement with momentum. You know, we don't want to settle for the status quo. We want to see the gospel drawing people in and changing lives. But Mark is very clear. The movement of Jesus comes with a cost. The movement of Jesus comes with a cost. Look at verse 9. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Have a boat ready in case this crowd crushes me. As the movement grows and grows, the cost grows and grows. Jesus, he's meeting real human need and is almost crushed by the people desperate to be helped by him. People are literally pressing in around him into, uh, with such intensity to touch him and be healed that they are almost crushing him. And all of this is a small picture into where this movement is ultimately headed. You know, what Jesus is doing will culminate with him being crushed on the cross. And he'll give himself over completely to heal our deepest need. Now, if this, is, if this movement is just a passing fad, you know, the sacrifice, it's not worth it. If this movement isn't true, the sacrifice, the cost, it's not worth it. If this was just Jesus trying to build an empire for himself, just for his namesake, in an earthly sense. The cost isn't worth it. But that is not what Jesus is up to with his movement. This is the beginning of a movement unlike anything we've ever seen on earth. And as the movement grows, suddenly the scenery shifts. Uh, we move from Jesus almost being crushed on the ground to him going up on a mountaintop with a select few. Uh, look at verses 13 through 15. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve whom he named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Mountains are spiritual places. We get a sense of this living in Vancouver, uh, whether it's St. Mark's Summit, the Grind Dog Mountain, or even the view from Queen Elizabeth Park. There are peaks that we can ascend to where the view is just breathtaking. And from that place, it changes our perspective of what's below. 
You know, we're removed from being within the busyness and the need, and from above, we simply see the beauty. You know, mountains become a thin place, a place where heaven becomes more palpable on earth. I've had the privilege of hiking Mount Sinai. It was a thin place. You know, in the wee hours of the morning, a group of us began the trek up the mountain, and uh, we, we mounted our mighty steeds, and by mighty steeds, I mean camels, and our uh, Bedouin guides, they told us the names of our camel. Julie, Julia's camel was uh, whiskey, which I was very jealous of, and, and my camel was champagne. Good names for camels. And, you know, after a few hours, we get to the top of Mount Sinai with plenty of time to see the sun rising across the horizon. It was breathtaking. And as the sun's rising, this group of Korean nuns begins singing, How Great Thou Art. And we recognize it. And this group beside us in Spanish starts singing, How Great Thou Art. And so our group starts singing, How Great Thou Art. And so here we are on the top of Mount Sinai, everyone praising God in multiple languages. You know, this was beautiful. Heaven seemed more palpable on earth. It's not a surprise then. You know, that throughout the scriptures, uh, mountains are spiritual Places, places where heaven becomes more palpable on earth. At key moments, God meets us on mountains, especially when he's up to something new. Uh, let's take the Exodus, for example. A defining moment in the nation of Israel's life. Uh, and God saves his people, and then he meets them out in the wilderness. But where? At Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, at the base of the mountain, he calls the 12 tribes of Israel to be his people, to be his treasured possession. And he got, God, he calls Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, they'll be God's representatives to and in the world. And a movement of God was happening, and it culminates on a mountain as Moses receives the Ten Commandments. A movement is happening with Jesus, and it's gaining momentum. It's growing, and it's growing, and the disciples are caught up, of it, caught up in it. And then verse 13, Jesus went up the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. You know, their hearts would be racing. Not only are they caught up in the movement, but they're being brought into its epicenter. You know, they would be thinking, Jesus is taking us up a mountain. You know, this is it. God is up to something in this movement. This is the new exodus that we've been waiting for, and we're at the center of it. You know, they would think, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. The math is pretty simple. Jesus is recreating the nation of Israel, and we're it. He's chosen us. We're at the center of it all. This is a big deal. Going up a mountain to these men would be a big deal, and their excitement wouldn't be unwarranted. Because Jesus is, in fact, inviting them into something much bigger than they could dare imagine. He's called them to himself at the top of this mountain because, yes, God is doing something new in and through him, and the disciples get to play a crucial role in that. And verses 14 and 15 uh, define their role more specifically. Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. So, first, that they might be with him. That they might be with him. And second, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Here's the important thing. The 12 are called so that they might be with Jesus. 12 are called so that they might be with Jesus. The focus of this movement is not the 12, but who they are with. Jesus, he's calling them to himself. The disciples are at the center, but Jesus is the center. 
And being a part of this movement has nothing to do with one's talent or ability, but their association with Jesus. Because discipleship does not and never does consist in what people can do uh, for Jesus, but in what Christ can make of us. Remember, Jesus... He's the one who called them to follow him. He's the one who summoned them up the mountain. He's the one who's now named them apostles. None of this is painted as if it's their own initiative. And remaining a part of this movement depends on how they remain with Jesus. They need to be with him. And this is fundamental because Jesus intends to send them, but to send them to do what? To preach. To preach about what? Preach about Jesus, the Son of God, which is only possible if they know him and dwell with him. He's going to send them out to cast out demons and heal people. But how? Not by their own power, but with the authority of Jesus himself. And how can they do that if they don't know Jesus, if they don't dwell with him? And it's such an obvious point. I know a lot of you are thinking, yeah, we know this. You've got to be with Jesus. If we're going to be a part of... Jesus' movement. We have to be with him. But this is something, this, this basic point is something that we fail to grasp and live out time and time again. Often we want to do great things for God. We really do. But we can risk getting the order mixed up. We want to be sent without being with him. We risk focusing more on what we want to do than the one we're called to be with. We're more interested in tying our own agenda to Jesus than tying ourselves to Jesus. Or we just go and do it assuming that Jesus is in this with us too. And when this happens, someone might be compelling. Their vision might be grand, but the substance is missing. It might have the makings of a movement even, but it is not the movement of Jesus. In the commissioning of the twelve, we see that what we do flows from being with Jesus. Mission, or living for Christ in the world, always depends on being with him. But we risk doing all sorts of things that are devoid of flowing from Christ to begin with. Or we do all sorts of things that originally flowed from him, but now take us away from dwelling with him. And the apostles, they were at risk of this too. There's no different for that. And so Jesus reminds them of this fundamental truth to their calling. They must be with him because they're apostles now. They're sent ones, sent out into the world on his behalf. How can they do that if they're not with him? And Jesus even says in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5, Whoever remains in me and I in him, it's he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from remaining and being with Jesus, we can do nothing. And what's significant, and what we don't want to dare miss in all of this, is that Jesus calls very ordinary people to be with him. He calls the... Amharets, which is the people of the land. And we know this from their various names. Look at verses 16 through 19. Uh, he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges. That is, and you miss this in the Greek, but it goes like this, Sons of Thunder! <laughs> it's best nickname ever. Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas and James, the sons of Eltheus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You know, we have this collective of, of men with different backgrounds. Fishermen, tax collectors, uh, political activists, and they all matter to Jesus. They all play an important role in his mission. And their fundamental sense of identity that no longer comes from their own pursuits, but being with Jesus. 
Their unity doesn't come in any commonality. They're actually all very different because the movement of Jesus will be uncomfortably diverse. Their unity will come simply by being with Jesus. He's calling ordinary, everyday people to himself. And he's reshaping their lives so they might join him in the renewal of all things. But let's pause for a moment. We need a sidebar to address something here. The 12 are all men. Is this a movement where only men can be leaders? Is this a movement where only men can be leaders? We can't ignore that the 12 were men. That's just a historical fact. But the Christian movement immediately began to empower women in revolutionary ways. And the New Testament gives us a beautiful picture into this. In Romans, we learn of Junia, uh, who may have been an apostle herself. In Acts, uh, the apostle Philip's daughters are mentioned as influential prophets. Phoebe is a deacon, and she delivers the letter of Romans to the church in Rome on behalf of Paul. This would have made her the authoritative interpreter of the letter to that community on Paul's behalf. There's Priscilla, who helped found and host churches. And we have Mary Magdalene, who is the first preacher of Easter, discovering the empty tomb and rushing to proclaim that Christ is risen to the apostles themselves. These are just a few of many examples, but I want to be clear. Women are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And I want to be really clear. Women are not second-class citizens at this church. Sisters, can I get an amen? Amen. There we go. Brothers are like uncomfortably nervous right now. (laughs) Now stepping back into the text, the calling of the 12, it's this life-changing moment for them. This is a thin place where heaven intersects with earth. And from the mountain, the apostles can look back down from where they've come with a different lens and a different perspective. You know, they don't leave the same. They came up as disciples, and now they're being sent back down as apostles. Uh, they come up following Jesus, but they return with a commissioning to be sent out on his behalf. This is mountaintop spirituality. You know, the presence of God is palpable. People are changed. It's a beautiful moment. It's a beautiful moment. But it's not the final moment. There's nothing wrong, you know, about wanting to have a mountaintop experience with God. There's nothing wrong with wanting to experience a thin place where heaven seems more palpable in your life. But it's easy to start pursuing these experiences as if they're the only experience that matters in the Christian life. You want miracles, or you want prophetic gifts or healings. You want the big moment stuff. And all of this is in Scripture, after all, and all of it is good. But it's not the only experience with God. The problem is that we can get so caught up in seeking mountaintop experiences that we settle for a spirituality of inner experience and big ideas. In other words, we get stuck on the mountain and become disconnected from the world. Or we get so caught up seeking these moments that when they don't happen, you actually start to have an existential crisis. You think something's wrong with you, or that God is distant, or worse, you think that this entire enterprise of Christianity just can't be true because it's not meeting your expectations. Mountaintop spirituality alone is not sustainable. But alternatively, you might consider religion hogwash. You know, you're the sort of person who wears a monocle and a top hat and calls things hogwash. But uh, this whole talk of mountaintop spirituality uh, is the problem you have with religion. 
It's all talk. It's all caught up in the afterlife, the eternal, the, uh, you know, the otherly. It's two ideas and, and self, you know, self-experiential and, and emotionally driven for you. It seems disconnected from reality, and it seems to make very little practical difference in the world, which is why you just focus on the earth and trying to be a good person who cares for people in the need. Uh, you're a humanist because it's tangible. It's real. You know, it's gritty. You don't need the abstract. You don't need the self-experiential or spiritual. But talk to any social worker on the ground. Talk to anyone who's constantly facing human need, and what will they tell you? Lisa Wesson, she was one of the many social workers who volunteered to help New York grieve after 9-11. And here's what she says from that experience. I felt I was drowning in grief. My nervous system was being stretched to its limits. Compassion fatigue set in. Compassion fatigue is a combination of physical and emotional depletion associated with caring for clients in distress. What's she saying? Humanism alone isn't sustainable. So driving for a hyper-individualized, abstract, maybe self-indulgent, mountaintop spirituality alone, it's not sustainable. And striving for a self-empowered, detached-from-God, fix-it humanism isn't sustainable. Because both actually stop short of what Jesus is offering. He's not trying to take us up to heaven by abandoning earth, nor is he simply trying to leave us alone on earth to fix it all ourselves. He's bridging these two realities. Look at verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Then they went home. When we experience the presence of Jesus, it will be extraordinary and revolutionary and life-changing. But it will also take us back to the ordinary, practical, day-to-day -day life. I hiked up Mount Sinai. You know, I stood where Moses stood, approximately at least. Everything's proximity, you know, but... I watched the sunrise, and I, I heard the people of God praising God in multiple languages. And I sang along, and I had chills and shivers running down my spine. But it turns out on this day that the chills and the shivers I was experiencing were something far more ordinary than spiritual. I met a friend on the mountain. His first name, uh, Montezuma. His agenda, revenge. Yes, you know, on top of Mount Sinai, one of the world's most acclaimed holy sites, I had Montezuma's revenge. And the hike back down was utter embarrassment, you know, followed by weakness and dehydration and feeling rotten. And, and I had to put my entire weight on Julia, who's like half my size, for the three-hour trek down because the, the, the camels can't go back down the mountain because what would you expect of a camel named whiskey or champagne? Uh, and, you know, I went up. I went up into the spiritual. But I came right back down into earth. And I came crashing back down to earth after one of the greatest spiritual moments I've ever experienced in my life. But did the how the story end invalidate my uh, experience? No. The apostles have a mountaintop experience with Jesus. It's amazing. And then verse 20 seems a little anticlimactic. They went home. And hopefully, you know, in better shape than I was. And, and it'll be three more chapters, three more chapters before they're even sent out to use the authority that Jesus gave to them. They go up the mountain and then they go back home to the ordinary, everyday, normal life. So the extraordinary and the ordinary, how do these two experiences relate? Don't they undermine one another? 
No. Because the sort of spirituality that Jesus brings for us is in the ordinary, normal, everyday life. He wants to infuse those places with his presence. The sort of salvation Jesus is bringing is found in the very, very ordinary. And this is what's so powerful about the Incarnation. God came to us. He met us in our place. And heaven comes to earth. And as we meet God in the person of Jesus, yes, we might have phenomenal mountaintop experiences. But we will always, always, always have him in the most ordinary moments. Because the truth is we need a spirituality that can meet us on earth and sustain us on earth. We need a spirituality that is true even when we're sick or have the flu or have blisters or Montezuma's revenge. And I can tell you after this week, I need a Jesus who meets me in having a toddler with hand, foot, and mouth disease and a two-month-year-old who got her first immunization shots. You know, I need a Jesus who meets a terribly underslept Alistair and Julia, and Julia especially needs a Jesus with a terribly underslept Alistair. You know, we need a Jesus who meets us in exams, and the mundane work of homework, and the mundane work of work. You know, in the walks, and our drives, and the, the cooking, and the cleaning, and the crying, and the laughing, and the mindless watching of Netflix, and the vulnerable act of praying, and sleeping, and waking, but that's precisely the power of the incarnation. God meets us on earth as one of us. And he meets us in this stuff and says, you can dwell with me here. You can be with me here because nothing is so small or so mundane or unclean or irreligious that Jesus isn't present. True Christian spirituality means heaven intersects with earth. The incarnation, Jesus coming down to us, the weight of glory touching our lot less than holy lives. You know, we don't focus on heaven's splendor and majesty to the neglect of earth's dirt and grit. That actually makes heaven too small, saying that earth has nothing to do with it. And we don't focus on the everyday realities to the neglect of heaven. Because that would actually make earth too small to say that heaven has nothing to do with it. Instead, we focus on Jesus. The place of God and man. The place of heaven meeting earth and earth meeting heaven. We dwell with Jesus. And his extraordinariness rubbing up against our ordinariness. And that's the beauty of Jesus, too. We don't have to go up the mountain to find him. He comes to us. He finds us. He dwells us. He calls us. And we need this. We especially need a spirituality that can sustain us when the human need around us is so overwhelming. Because Jesus calls us to himself, but he sends us out into a world that can easily overwhelm us. Look at verse 20 again. Then they went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. The apostles, they're going to wither away if they attempt to face this human need without being with Jesus. They simply can't do it. There's too much. They, they don't even have time to eat. We might have compassion. We may have hearts bursting for the brokenness in the world. We may even be well equipped to make a difference. That the only way to make a sustainable difference is by abiding with Jesus. He's the only one with the strength, the power, the ability to endure in the crushing human need that surrounds us, and he grants us his spirit so we can endure. And Jesus, he calls us to himself. The calling is fundamental. It's to be with him. But he's, he's also clear, this doesn't create a spirituality that removes us from the world. And this doesn't create 
a spirituality uh, of navel-gazing or narcissistic self-reflection. Jesus calls us to himself, but for the sake of the world. The only way we can survive is by remaining with him. If we want to see the extraordinary come into our regular old lives, it has to come from him. So lastly, what does this mean for us as a church? What does this mean for us as we celebrate our second birthday and look forward to the year to come? St. Peter's Fireside is not a movement, at least not in and of itself. We hope to be caught up in the movement of Jesus, which means that Jesus takes us places we may not have envisioned. We can look back at this past year and say, I didn't see that coming. We can go through things we have planned for, and, and, and we've also, you know, didn't see it come to fruition. And yet, things we didn't plan for came to fruition, and they're beautiful. Some of our plans were good, and some haven't come at the speed we thought. But in success or failure, in growth or decay, in hype or normalcy, Jesus is with us. That's what it means to be the church, that Jesus is in this ordinary space. As a church, that's our foundation, that's our hope, that's our joy, and he invites us to get caught up in his movement. And this is the best news. If you want to be in the movement of Jesus, a movement that is sweeping the globe today, transforming lives, this is all you got to do. Be with Jesus. The gospel of Mark, that means you repent, you align your mind, your heart, uh, your emotions, your desires, your affections, you align them around Jesus, and you believe in him, you follow him. And whatever we might do in our city, wherever you know, Christ calls us together or individually, it all starts and ends by being with him. And my prayer and my hope for our community as we go into our third year together is that we might be a community that is fundamentally known for what it's like to be with Jesus. And I hope that people experience him in our midst, not because we're so great, but because he's here. Jesus is the one moving, and he'll continue to do so in outstanding ways, and he will use us if we abide with him, and he'll use us even when we fail to do so. And we get to be a part of this great movement. We get to join God in the renewal of all things, and we just are invited, we're invited to dwell with him, to dwell in the place where heaven intersects with earth, where the extraordinary gets wrapped up in the ordinary, where normal, everyday people, are embraced by God and used for his purposes.